It's good to be here. Good for Sundays. They don't come as often as I would like, but I'm glad they come regularly. Uh, we want to w- welcome you here to the building this morning, and those of, um, those of you who are joining us by internet or some other means this morning. Church, we've come today to proclaim Christ, to sing His truth, to be refreshed and renewed in His presence, and to declare the glory of God. So hear these words from our brother, the Apostle Paul, from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when he writes, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Church, indeed, for all who are in Christ, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, let's stand together. Let's do what Christians have been doing for centuries, standing and responding to what God God has done for us in Christ, for his name's sake, and for his glory. We sing.
Father, it's an expression of your love that we have the freedom, the liberty, indeed the desire to gather as the people of God this morning to celebrate your love that is and was and will always be expressed in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us with power in our inner being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts this morning. We pray that we, by your Spirit, would be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is your love for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. Father, we recognize the, the greatest expression of your love 
was not just an expression of bare, isolated love, but it was an expression of your wisdom, your holiness, your justice, your righteousness, your goodness, your truth. And that great expression was most supremely revealed in the incarnation, the coming of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, taking on flesh and blood that he may obey and suffer as a man, as our substitute, fulfilling all the righteous requirements of the law for us who do not, taking the justice, the judgment, the wrath of God for those of us who do deserve that wrath, but being raised from the grave, reversing the curse on sin for those who believe, ascending to your right hand where he rules by his spirit, resourcing his people. We thank you for that great expression of your love. And Lord, that love should comfort our hearts today. In a time, in a season where it appears the world is rejecting you. Rival kingdoms, rival kings, rival saviors. But Father, we by faith this morning cling to your love, knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nor death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor tribulations, or nakedness, or peril, or sword can separate us from your love for us in your son Jesus. Lord, enlighten our eyes today as the psalmist prays that we may behold that love anew this morning. May our hearts be comforted by that great love that we know in your son Jesus. And we ask this for his sake. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand and continue singing this morning. Get 
He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds. By his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. Let's sing that again from Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. We are healed by your sacrifice, by the life that you By your grace, we are saved, we are saved. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, 
because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Sing that again. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. We are healed. come to you because of what Christ has done and because of what we just sung that by his wounds we are healed in this life we will have much trouble and yet as we read earlier we are vessels, we are jars of clay yet we are in your hands and we are sons and daughters and we look back to what Christ has accomplished what we just sung from Isaiah 53 and we look forward really to what our brother Isaiah saw even 700 years before Paul wrote when he saw your glory being revealed, that one day every mountain would be made low, every valley would be raised, the ground would be level, the rough places made smooth, and then we will see the glory of the Lord. We look forward in faith to that, and we get to sing about it right now. Through Christ we pray, amen.
voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the come to this portion of the service where your word is preached. Pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would find open hearts, and that where 
there is a hardness where there is crusty ground, fallow ground that needs to be broken up. We pray that you would do that work by your spirit as your word is preached. Fill Brian with your spirit and give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see and do what only you can do when your word, not the word of man, but the word of God is preached. Accomplish your work through it in us, your people, today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you, Barry, worship team, band, leading us in worship through song. If you would turn your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 18. I love that section of Scripture. I love that song. Isaiah 40 is a remarkable beginning of a section that takes us through Isaiah 40 to 55. Chapter 39, which obviously precedes chapter 40, is a promise of exile. And then you have this hope. And then there's going to be four servant songs. One will come, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah uh, 50, Isaiah 53. These servant songs that speak about the one who would come and, and suffer humiliation and ultimately would die so that God's people could be brought out of exile, having their sins paid for. It's also a very important section for our gospel writers because you'll notice Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all cite Isaiah 40 as they speak about the messenger who comes from the wilderness preparing the way of Yahweh. One of those great texts that defend the divinity, the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Isaiah 40, it's Yahweh that, is, that the messenger is preparing the way for. And the gospel writers say, it is Christ. And we have that Christ, and we behold his glory. And that is the means by which we overcome anxieties, frustrations, fears, discouragements. We stare at his glory every day. The glory of God in the face of Christ. And this is one of those means by which we behold his glory as well. And corporate worship, and singing, prayers, and the preaching, the hearing of the Word of God. Well, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to reveal His glory to us today by His Spirit in the face of His Son. Father, thank You that we have that glory. We do see that glory in Your Son. And we have the perfect Word of God that perfectly reveals the Son to us. So, Lord, we're asking You right now to do by Your Word what it has promised to revive our souls, to make wise the simple, to rejoice our hearts, and to enlighten our eyes. And we ask this for your son's sake. Amen. By the end of Star Wars Episode 3, the revenge of the Sith, things have gone bad for the Galactic Empire. Supreme Chancellor Palpatine has been exposed as a dark lord known as Darth Sidious. And his protege, Anakin Skywalker, has gone over to the dark side by betraying the other members of the Jedi Council and becoming Darth Vader. Their new and evil empire will bring death and destruction to the galaxy. But there are two rays of hope. Anakin's wife 
has given birth to twins destined to be Jedi Masters. The film ends with Princess Leia and, and Luke Skywalker being placed into the secret care of adoptive parents on two different planets. And then in that final scene in that movie, two sons rise on the horizon with the promise of future victory. Indeed, what that's signaling is light will triumph over darkness. It always does. And we've seen rays of light throughout our section here of 2 Samuel as Absalom has rebelled against his father. And this rebellion has led to a civil war. Indeed, in 2 Samuel, times have been dark indeed. Absalom is not just a rogue son. He is posturing as a king and Messiah replacement. And it has brought devastation to the people of God. And yet, as that darkness descends, we have seen new hope arise. We saw last week, at the very end, daybreak. Chapter 17, verse 22, daybreak. In other words, the dark night of Ahithophel, his counselor, the dark night of his plans have been reversed. They are over, and the light of David's kingdom has reappeared. It always does. Remember that. God has made a promise to David and his kingdom, and no darkness can overcome it. The light overcomes the darkness. And the reason we get fretful, the reason we get anxious, is we forget that promise. We develop promise amnesia. The light always overcomes the darkness. We're seeing it even in these difficult texts. So with Absalom's coup, David, at this point, for those of you that are visiting, had to leave Jerusalem in haste. And he did not have adequate supplies. But, but, but in Maenaim, which means uh, two kingdoms, if you will, he can truly say, the king, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's a glorious truth, isn't it? You prepare a table before me or for me in the presence of my enemies. God has provided literal Food, resources, and encouragement to the king through the people of God. The people of God should always be a source of encouragement, not division. And the people of God here are giving the king encouragement and resources. Also, the Lord has answered David's prayer. What was his prayer? It was a simple prayer. Make the counselor, Ahithophel's counsel, make it, turn it into foolishness. That's exactly what God has done. Remember Hushai. Hushai's counsel was heeded by Absalom rather than Ahithophel's. And what that did is it gave David and his men time to recoup and time to reorganize. We see the hidden sovereignty, the providence, as we sang about this morning, the love of God in the midst of darkness. Isn't this relevant to us today? It's the same God, same promises made to the same king. 
And yet we know even better than they how those promises would be realized in his greater son. Well, first of all, we see in this passage daybreak. Again, verse 22 speaks of this daybreak reflected in the king's victory against all odds. The king's victory against all odds. Notice with me in verse 1 of chapter 18. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command, get this, of a Philistine, Ittai the Gittite. This is a Gentile pagan who has converted to the true king, which we see the promises of Abraham, promises to Abraham being realized even here. All the nations will be blessed through the seed. The seed here is David. So we see here, David masterfully organizes a five-tiered army. He's a remarkable king. And so at the lowest level of this five-tiered army, you have the basic troops. Just above them, you have the commanders of hundreds. And then above them, you have the commanders of thousands. And over these, he's appointed three commanding officers, each with equal authority. Who are they? Joab, Abishai, and Ittai the Gittite. And at the highest level, you have David. And what he's doing, he's, he's seeking to deploy these separate units in different areas, and it would divide, all right, Absalom's superior forces. Absalom has a whole lot more soldiers than David does, okay? Remember, all of Israel has followed Absalom at this point. In other words, the majority. Of course, the supreme commanding officer here, David, is planning to fight himself. But notice in verse 3. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. I love this. These are the men that follow the king. And they are enthralled with the king. You are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. So they recognize their need for his help. But they recognized he did not need to die. This is just a human king. Notice in verse 4. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. This wasn't because of fear. If there's anyone courageous, it's David. We saw that throughout 1 Samuel. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. You know, sin complicates everything. Whether it's a high-handed sin like adultery or murder, 
are even a sin as innocent as a slanderous word formed as a prayer request. Sin always complicates everything. And here, the necessity of justice from the king and love from a father are in direct conflict. We're going to see that tension throughout this chapter. We've seen it up to this point, haven't we? The need for justice from the king and this love from a father. There's been a conflict, and that conflict is the result of sin. But in another sense, note how sure David was of victory. He says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Don't overlook that. He is outnumbered. But David lives, not perfectly, but he lives like every believer, the promise-driven life. God had promised him that he's going to have an everlasting kingdom. And he knows that dying on the battlefield like this is not going to fulfill that promise. And at this time, Absalom certainly is not the son of promise. So he's assuming that Joab, Abishai, and Ittai the Gittite, at least one of them, are going to have their say with his son. It reminds us of Psalm 3. Remember, Psalm 3. And always look at those superscriptions when you're reading the Psalms. There's about 12 Psalms that give us context. There's about 12 of the 150 Psalms in the superscription will tell you the context of the Psalms. Most of the Psalms don't give us the context. I think that's a benefit because we can universalize those promises and those glorious truths in the Psalms because we're not given context. And so they really fit every context. Psalm 3 was written during this time when Absalom rebelled against David. And here's what Psalm 3, 6 says. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Isn't that beautiful? You say, well, how does that apply to me? That truth is our truth because of our union in the greater son of David. So no matter what you're seeing, a group came into Louisville this week, armed and ready to go. We will not be afraid of thousands of people who set themselves against us because we are in union with the anointed king. All right, that is our promise. Well, notice in verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel. That gives you the hint that David's army is a smaller force. They're going against Israel. That signals to us that Israel is the superior force. And the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. So by choosing a forest as the battlefield, what David is doing, if you ever read them in the Civil War, you can see uh, many of these great generals, they were, they were masters and, and scholars of topography. It was said of Grant that he could remember uh, the topography wherever he was. He had a photographic memory and he would set up battles based on the topography. 
And that would give what was often his smaller force an advantage because of where the, how the land was laid out. Well, that's exactly what David is doing here. He's minimizing Absalom's numerical advantage, and it pays off. And you go, what does this got to do with us? It has everything to do with us. Remember, the Old Testament is preparing us for a greater king, a greater Messiah. And the point in these first six verses is that David's army, the people who followed David, benefited greatly because they were following a more able king than the imposter king. And that is a word to us. And we can receive, and we have the promise of receiving even better help because our king has once for all ascended. And ironically, he actually did die at the hands of his enemies because that was God's strategy. But now, having triumphed over sin, death, and the devil, our greatest enemies, he sits enthroned triumphantly at the right hand of God the Father. And here's what he does. And we need to renew our minds in this. He resources us daily. He resources us every moment by his Spirit. His life-giving Spirit. He gives us the Spirit... And his angel servants. He sends them to us. And here's what else he does. He ever lives to make intercession for his people. The triumphant king who is also a priest. Ever lives to make intercession for his people. So even as the people of God here recognize their need for David's help. We have a greater king and even better help. That's what Paul was pondering in Romans 8. He says, it is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Furthermore, it is Christ who died, who is also risen, who is seated at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. You know what that means? We have a sovereign champion. We have a sovereign Champion who has once for all accomplished salvation and victory. It is foolish for us to be anxious. It is foolish and wrongheaded of us to, to despair. Our king has triumphed. Our problem is that we don't adequately understand or believe that. It's been said, and I found this from an old sermon I preached in Exodus. We don't know who said it. I should have taken credit for it. Because we don't know who said it, but it's a great statement. If we could hear our great intercessor praying audibly for us, we would not fear a thousand devils. Isn't that a good word? If we could hear our great intercessor praying audibly for us, we would not fear a thousand devils. So as we enter each day, and the moment your eyes open, you enter into a world of spiritual warfare. We can know, we can trust that we serve a king who's already taken on 
and defeated definitively our enemies, our foes. Indeed, analogous to Absalom assembling his massive army, such a large army that it's called Israel, opposition to the kingdom of God today seems almost overwhelming at times, doesn't it? It seems ultimate. We all, or perhaps many of us, saw that video of this angry, vitriolic man who warned he was bringing his group to Louisville this week, coming here to, to kick rear ends and take names. All of that is foolish. The enemy has been conquered. All right? And so it's easy to believe these things as ultimate things until we renew our minds. One of the very important reasons we gather as the people of God is to renew our minds in the truth of the true king. Ephesians 1.22, here's what Paul says. God has placed all things under his feet. Past tense. God has placed all things under his feet in subjection to him. Let me give you a fancy word or a Greek word here. Upotasso. All things have been brought in submission under the feet of the conquered, conquering king, the victorious king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, when you consider the glorious passage of Revelation 12, the church's victory over the dragon is explained in these words. They conquered by the blood of the lamb and what? The word of their testimony. What is the testimony you are publishing today? We've already conquered. We conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. So when people hear you speak or see you publish on social media, do they hear someone who has conquered or someone who is fearful and fretful and anxious? If we stand aright, here's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6. In the belt of truth... The breastplate of righteousness with the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, it's impossible for God's people to fall against the enemy. This is a word to us. Now notice in verse 7. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. Again, don't miss the language. Sometimes we, in our devotion, we read our Bibles too fast. And you miss glorious truths when you read your Bible too fast. You've been, I've been there, you've been there, where you're just trying to check it off so that you can get your Bible reading plan done. Well, that does us no good. We need to meditate. Notice, the servants of Israel, that's the minority here. It's the smaller army. They conquered the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. That's the men of Israel. Battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest, I love this, devoured more people that day than the sword. They didn't even have to do most of the fighting. The forest that David picked 
for the battleground did most of the fighting for them. I, I am so deeply encouraged by this. All right? This is our word, okay? This is a word of God to the people of God at Fisherville in the 21st century. So the land which was given to Israel is now turning on these rebels. It's fighting back. You see, when one is in rebellion to God, even your successes inevitably will be turned on its head. And I believe this is to be viewed through the lens of the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. These promises are sure, they are true, and God's people can embrace and trust in those promises no matter what they see with their eyes or hear with their ears. The success of David's battle against all odds reveals to us, God's people, God's provision for the people of God in times of conflict and struggle. Along with having the mighty blessings of a mighty king who fights our battles. Indeed, it also reminds us, we've already seen this daybreak break reflected in the, in the victory of the king against all odds. Second part of this passage, daybreak break reflected in the king's enemy's judgment in spite of their odds. Notice with me in verse 9. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Now what's going to be interesting here is that we're going to actually see more time spent on Absalom's death and demise than the details of the battle. That tells us, that's a, an interpretive principle that tells us this is the heart of what the writer is getting at. Absalom was riding on his mule. What is a mule? Well, in that day, it was a signature of of a king. Kings rode, in, rode mules and donkeys. So he is functioning as a king, okay? Absalom was riding on his mule. The mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head, assumingly his beautiful hair that's already been described, caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Of course, we see that word happened. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. What did we look at last week? Often, God's sovereignty is hidden. It's assuming the people of God who are reading the text have eyes to see. We saw last week in verse 14 of chapter 17... The Lord's purpose was to bring harm to this rebel. And here it's likely he's fleeing and he goes through these thick branches. And though the text doesn't mention his famous hair, I mean, think about this. The only thing we know about this man is his hair. It's a terrible legacy to leave. It's likely the case that his hair got tangled in the branches. Peter Lighthart picks out the irony of this. He says, his hair was his glory. His hair was his crown, but this glory led to his downfall. 
And here's the point. All self-produced glory, in the end, ends badly. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. All we as the people of God, that's not that we don't have responsibility as citizens. We certainly, we vote, we voice our uh, opinions, we, we write letters to our government, we, we, we carry out our responsibilities. We're not passive, okay? But in the end, we trust that when all this goes down, ultimately, all rival kingdoms are going to fall. It's happening here against the odds in fact, being suspended between heaven and earth is a picture of judgment. And the fact that he's riding a mule and it says, it went on. The mule just kept walking. He was more devoted to the mule than the mule was to him. With one providence, Absalom has lost his kingdom. Indeed, notice in verse 10. And a certain man saw it. And told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. That word hanging is a very important word. I had never picked it up until I began to study this passage intently. One commentator that I got this from, Robert Bergen, he reminds us that this word is only used one, else, one other place in the Old Testament. So you've got Absalom who's hanging from this oak tree, okay? Absalom was hanging, talui, that's the, that's the word in Hebrew, in an oak tree. Hanging here is used only one other place in the Torah, Deuteronomy 21, 23, to declare that anyone who is hung to loy on a tree, is under God's curse. Cursed is the one who is hung from a tree. All right? Absalom had rebelled against divine law by rebelling against his father and sleeping with members of David's harem. Absalom had the massive armies of Israel fighting to protect him. So in today's climate, I saw we talked about this last week. We have this neo-Marxist movement called Black Lives Matter that the majority of Americans are in favor of, all right? It appears that we are getting marginalized, all right? That the church is getting squeezed out of the United States' plans. Same thing's happening here. He had this massive army. Things looked inevitable, nevertheless. In spite of these seemingly insurmountable advantages, Absalom could not escape God's judgment. Be encouraged by that. Judgment is of the Lord, and he's really good at what he does. Now notice with me in verse 11. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him. Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. Now, Joab, he has this sense of justice, but we've seen with uh, he and his two other brothers, they have this sense of, of justice, but it's imperfect. 
I can't imagine what their mother went through when they were teenagers. Zeruiah. Maybe she raised them that way. But he knew that Absalom deserved death. He knew it. But the, and that the kingdom would not be restored to David as long as Absalom is alive. But this man has different thoughts on, on his mind. Notice in verse 12. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. This seems to be fidelity to David. I mean, in fact, I'm sure that's what it is. He's with, his, he's with David at this point. He loves the king. And the king has spoken. He does not want to cross the king. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man, Absalom. But it wasn't just love. It was also fear. Notice verse 13. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life... And there's nothing hidden from the king. Then you yourself would have stood aloof. In other words, you, you would not have supported me. You would not have come to my aid had I done that. Notice in verse 14, Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. I think Joab recognizes the guy was right. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And then Joab blew the trumpet. The troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled everyone to his own home. This is the burial of the accursed. We saw it in Joshua 8, or 7 rather, when Achan was buried in this very way after he went rogue against God and his people. We see it with the king of Ai in Joshua chapter 8. And so though Joab's treatment of Absalom is very cruel, especially when you consider they were blood-related. It was certainly justified under the law's requirement because of what Absalom had done. And so think of it this way. If with David, love, love triumphed over justice. With Joab, justice triumphs over love. Sin complicates things. And in this broken world, often, if not at all times, in the natural flow of things, justice or love get compromised. Absalom, on the other hand, died with the amnesia shared by many that God and his king cannot be finally defeated. He had developed that amnesia. He died as a rebel. He died as a fool. Indeed, notice in verse 18. This is a haunting verse. Now, Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. He built a monument for himself. And that is self-autonomy over what 
God had created us to be. We see it with the mark of Cain in Genesis 4. We see it with the, the building of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. We, we see it with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 4, where he builds a monument for himself. We saw it with Saul in 1 Samuel 15. All of these men were motivated and the people of Babel by self-glory. It's a common problem. Rebecca Pippert says, Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. That's a profound statement. Everyone has a Lord, and whatever or whoever is our Lord controls our lives. We see that with Absalom's monument to himself. And let's just use this as a metaphor for a moment. It's very doubtful that you're going to build a physical monument for yourself in your lifetime. But all of us could say that our lives ultimately will be a monument for what ultimately controlled us. It's a very sobering thought. The irony is that this monument, which was intended to magnify the greatness of Absalom, ends up being a monument magnifying the greatness of God in his faithfulness to his promises that all rival kingdoms will ultimately fail. Indeed, Psalm 2. O kings, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with trembling, kiss the sun lest you perish. That's what this monument at the end of the, the story ultimately reflects. Well, notice in verse 19 to 33, we read this briefly. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Joab said to him, But you're not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Joab knew that David had a pretty violent track record with people who brought bad news to him. And Himaz is the son of the priest. He says, you're not taking the news to him. We'll be having a funeral for you. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Himaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, come what may, let me run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing that you, have, you will have no reward for the news? You're not going to benefit Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates. The watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. The king said, is he alone? If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimez, the son of Zadok. The king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimez cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men 
who raised their hand against my lord the king. The king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimez answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, Your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. So I'm not sure that he understood at this point that Absalom had actually been killed. The king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? He wants an answer. Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved. One of the most moving, stirring sections of scripture. Went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, based on the fact that deep David's weeping runs into chapter 19, it appears that the writer here wants us to reflect a bit on David's anguish as we bring this message to a close. In the book, Songs in the Night, which is a study of sorrow in scriptures, a very helpful and good book, Michael Milton draws out three aspects of David's grief that I think are beneficial for us. First of all, it was a cry of loss. With David's agony here, we can all tangibly feel the wages of sin on our thorn-cursed world. One of my dear friends who used to work at Boyce College, John Powell, church planner in Houston, was tragically killed last Saturday night. He's on his way to Missouri with a friend to pick up his grandfather's pickup truck that he was going to restore with his 11-year-old son. And about 11.30 at night, they were on the interstate. They saw a car that had been in a wreck when was on fire. And so they stopped their car on the side. Other cars were just passing. And he went in to try to help the people who were sitting in the middle of the interstate. And he gets hit, saving his friend by an 18-wheeler. Two sons, two daughters, a precious wife. Grief is a healthy and proper response to death. I have often, too often seen Christians try to over-spiritualize it. The fact is, when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, he even knew he was going to raise him from the grave, and it says he wept. Grief is proper. It is right. Second, David's was a cry of regret. Milton points out that David, and you see it throughout the narrative, was very aware of his sins. His sins of omission and commission. What's the difference? Sins of omission are the sins left undone. The things I should have done and I didn't do. Sins of commission are the things I did do 
and I should not have done. And that kind of serves as the background to Absalom's tragedy. And he connects that situation to our own homes. This is a, a very haunting word, but I think it's a helpful word. David cries the cry of a man who wishes he could go back and change the clock. If only he had not taken more than one wife. If only he had repented of that and, and sought to bring peace to his family. If only he had not plotted the murder of Uriah. If only he had intervened as a parent to deal with the horrible situation with Tamar and Amnon and to quiet the heart of Absalom. If only, if only. These are the saddest words in the English language. I think many of us would concur with that. But how gracious it is for our God to give us a glimpse of David's grief of regret here. The fact that we can hear that and feel that this morning is an evidence of grace, that it's not too late. That it's not too late. That God is giving us, giving you, giving me time to deal with the regrets as far as we can. As much as depends on you. Romans 12. So the question is, are there sin patterns that you as parents, you as grandparents, need to break so as to not to foster an example and model that your kids will follow? Are there duties that you have failed to embrace that you need to embrace? Your kids are watching you. And as we've said earlier, they will be a chip off the old block. Third, David's cry was a cry of longing. He yearned to be able to do something about the tragedy of Absalom's death. Even if possible, notice in verse 33, would I had died instead of you. But as another psalmist will tell us in Psalm 49 verse 7, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. In other words, and this ought to take some pressure off your shoulders, parents. God has not given a single parent here the job description of Savior and Messiah. At the end of the day, David had regrets as every parent and grandparent in this room does but the fault primarily lie with Absalom himself Absalom was not a victim ultimately he was a culprit he rejected the true king for self-rule so even if we're not perfect parents and we none of us are thank God we have one at the end of the day, your children's rebellion ultimately falls on them. It was Absalom's rejection, not David's rejection. So don't wear that guilt. But importantly, we have here an, ex of an example, as we close here, of a problem that David 
cannot fix because he's a sinner himself. Justice demanded one thing, right? And David's love longed for something completely different. Amazingly, David, his cry here anticipates the solution that would one day be provided. Would I had died instead of you? Verse 33. I think he's speaking greater than he knows. Because when that great king comes, he will do just that. He will die instead of the rebel. Instead of the insurrectionists. Romans 5. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And in so doing, for the first time in history, justice, as represented by Joab, and love, as represented by David, were perfectly expressed. That's a good word for us. Ironically, the death of Absalom brought peace to the land. And that points us to the one who ultimately would bring priests to the land by his death. And that's why the New Testament takes that verse, Deuteronomy 21, 23, Cursed is the one who's hung from a tree, which we saw with Absalom. And Paul applies it to Jesus. Christ delivered us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. And what that means to us this morning is everything. Here it is. If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for you, how much more will he freely in him give us all things that we need for life and godliness? That is a word to every believer here. And it's a promise to the unbeliever who would repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace in your son. And we thank you that we have a glorious Savior in Jesus, the greater David. May we behold his glory this week. May that beholding overcome our anxieties, our fears, our worries, our doubts, and our frustrations. And I pray if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus, I pray today would be the day of salvation. Pray that they would even have the freedom to come and speak to me about these issues. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we close, we have JP and Jennifer and their children, Josiah, that we all pray for. This is their last Sunday with us. They got mad at us and they're leaving. No, it's not that. They're moving to Cincinnati on Friday, right? And Josiah is a warrior. You see his joy on his face even now. And we do want to pray for them. We'll continue to pray for them as the people of God, but we want to pray for them uh, one more time as, as, a, as a corporate body. And radiation is coming, right? It's so, but there's going to be possible side effects to that so we want to pray for that and we want to pray for the transition and anything else particular
Okay. Amen. Okay. When is that MRI? Okay. All right. Let's pray for this family. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this family that you've entrusted to Fisherville for a season. I want to thank you for their testimony. They have and continue to overcome by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in the word of their testimony. I thank you for this godly couple. And I thank you for three children you have entrusted to them as stewards. And Lord, I thank you for their faithful stewardship. It is evident. The fruit is there. And Lord, we could pray that you continue to grant them wisdom in their stewardship of this task. And Lord, things have gotten more complicated because their precious son Josiah requires inordinate attention right now. And that's necessary. And it's the right thing. We just pray you grant them wisdom as they care for their other children. And I pray that you would set their other children apart for glorious and noble purposes. Vessels of honor. That you protect them body and soul. And we pray, Lord, for their health. And we pray for their godliness. We pray for their conversions to Christ. Lord, we pray for Josiah. We pray as he goes through this radiation that you would protect him from the side effects. We pray that the radiation would be very effective. You are the, the Lord who heals, but you use human agency and means. And we're praying for this to, to work effectively. Lord, he has an MRI coming up. We pray that that would be a day of celebration. We pray, Lord, you heal him ultimately in this life. That you would, Lord, set him apart and that he would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And we pray for their move for the transition and all the logistical issues there. We pray for the peace of Christ on them, for wisdom. We pray that you would lead them to a church where the word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted. Thank you, Lord, for them. I pray that you would show us as a church wisdom in how we can continue to love them and care for them in the days ahead. And Lord, that you would move on the hearts of every believer here today to commit to pray for this family, knowing that the prayers of the righteous availeth much. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Just a, a brief announcement, then we'll close. I took a couple of notes here, and I probably won't say everything that needs to be said. Um, <clears throat> from the beginning of this pandemic, and the Lord didn't... He didn't prepare us for it. <laughs> he didn't tell us it was coming. Um, it's, it's forced all churches and all leadership to, to really think about things they've never had to think about before. Like I've said before, we've been trying to build this plane in the air. I hope that you've seen that even when you've disagreed with us, and there's always going to be disagreement uh, in any church, I hope that you've seen that we have... If not perfectly, we have tried to obey the word of God. And Romans 13 has been a passage, but I think even more particular for us has been 1 Peter 2.17. Because Peter is writing particular to a people who are under oppressive government. More so than what we have experienced thus far. And, and he is concerned that they would declare his marvelous... Uh, 
you know, his marvelous gospel that they would be a light in darkness. First Peter 2, you see it. That's the context when he tells the people of God to do something they didn't want to do. Now, why would he require, why would he would command them? Because they didn't want to do it. And he said, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Now, that, that's four imperatives. And so we've not done this perfectly, though we have tried to do this blamelessly. We have tried to make our decisions based on those four imperatives. What decisions can we make that will honor everyone, won't please everyone, all right? You cannot please everybody. You'll go insane if, you, if that becomes your goal. You honor everyone, you love the brotherhood, so you take the people of God in your local assembly as your priority, even as you think about the community. You fear God, and then you honor the emperor. And so we have tried to do that throughout. It's been our grid. And so we've taken every suggestion, every mandate and order through this grid. Even if you've disagreed with us, I hope that you have seen that that has been our priority. I can assure you the Word of God is my authority. Even though I'm not going to ever interpret it perfectly, it is the perfect Word of God. Um, and so we've done that. And so far, we have implemented everything the governor has asked us to do. And not because I personally agree with most of what the governor believes. I don't. I, as you've heard me say, um, you say, well, abortion is just one issue. Well, if murder is the one issue, that's a big issue. Uh, if, you, if you met Mr. and Mrs. Wright and they were perfect except they were a murderer, you wouldn't, you wouldn't marry them. All right? So we have tried to do everything he's asked us to do. Uh, in fact, um, on Friday, though, he, he said that his desire was for churches not to gather over the next two weeks. I don't think he's persecuting the church. I don't think he's doing that at all. I don't think he has regard for the church. That's another issue. Um, but... He also made allowance in that statement. An allowance, I think, that allows us to continue to obey 1 Peter 2.17 and still meet. And that allowance was for churches who would continue to meet to continue to do what he's asked us to do. And here is where I want to come in you. Because we have done what the governor has asked us to do, and you have. Thank you. You have done it. I commend you. Not surprising to me. And there are people that can't wear a mask. We get that. There, there, there's health issues. There's asthma. There's claustrophobia. I mean, those are real issues. And so the ones that aren't wearing masks are not in disobedience, okay? He made that allowance too. But for those of you that can, you have, you have submitted to your leadership. You have. And, and because of that, I believe we can continue to meet as the people of God, because we've done what he asked us to do. Now, that means we need to continue to do what he asked us to do. And remember, when we go outside, there are people driving by, and they see the people of God at Fisherville in the parking lots. And so here's what I would ask you to do, because I want us to continue to do this. At least keep your mask on if you can. Again, there's some of the you can't. If you can keep your mask on, it's hard to social distance in the parking lot. It really is. You love each other too much. Some of you just have to hug. We're not going to exercise church discipline on someone who has to hug somebody. 
I had a, hu- I had a husband call me this week. He said, what do I do with my wife? Uh, it, was a, it was a precious uh, call. But keep your mask on if you can. And we're going to continue to do what he asked us to do. But we believe we can continue to meet right now because we've done everything he's asked us to do. All right? Now, we're going to take each thing on a case-by-case. If he, if he comes out with a mandate, we're going to have to revisit this thing, and we'll have to pray about it and talk about it. Here's what I ask you to do. You're frustrated. I get it. I am too. This, is the, this has been the least fun season of my pastoral ministry. It has not been fun. And it's not because of you. It's just been because of the difficult providences, all right? The Lord has exposed sin in my own heart. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Let's continue to be mature. Let's continue to be grown-ups. You're going to disagree with some of our decisions. Some of you will. That, you have every right to. We're not a cult. If you agree with everything I do, um, that's scary, all right? I'm not asking you to agree with everything. I'm asking you to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because that is how we will maintain a, a, a ministry and a testimony to a world that's opposed. I think that's why you have that verb, be submissive, in so many contexts. So, for instance, Peter says to the unbelieving, or to the believing wife, be, you want to win your unbelieving husband to Christ? Be submissive to him. I wouldn't have said that. Peter said it. And here's why he said it. There's something about submission that is beautiful to a heart that cannot submit. And unbelievers can't submit. Their hearts are in rebellion. And when they see someone submits, it makes no sense to them. So let's continue to do that and be the people of God. And when you feel frustration and anger, that is the Holy Spirit's cue for you to go to your knees. And we're going to make it through this. We are. And we're going to come out of this and we're going to be stronger and we're going to have a stronger witness in this community. I have no doubt about that. You are people of the book. You are people of the king. You have proven that time and time again. Let's close with a benediction from Romans chapter 16. And again, remember this. Acts 5, 29 is always in play. The moment they command us to do what the Bible forbids, or they forbid us to do what the Bible commands, it's called civil disobedience at that point. Let's close with these glorious words. If you could speak them with me. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You are dismissed. If you would wait on your deacons to usher you out.